Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey everybody, Around the Coin is sponsored today by Otter. Otter, spelled O-T-T-E-R, like the little animal, helps tech companies hire talented and inexpensive software developers. If you work at a tech company that's looking for developers, hit up HireOtter.com. Uh, Otter specializes in recruiting developers from Argentina because they have a similar time zone, favorable currency exchange rate, and they just have amazingly talented people down there. The rates are super inexpensive to, from 35 to 50 an hour. So whether it's PHP or Go, JavaScript, iOS, Java, mobile, whatever, hit up HireOtter.com to find a great software developer today. We also have the show sponsored by Redeem, spelled R-E-D-Triple-E-M. And Redeem is the safest place to trade Bitcoin for discounted gift cards or vice versa. Whether you've got gift cards, you want to trade for Bitcoin, or you want to save 20% or more on discounted gift cards from your favorite retailers like Amazon, Walmart, eBay, Best Buy, and dozens of others, check out Redeem, R-E-D-E-E-M dot com to start trading today. And on with the show. Ah! All right, we're back with another show of Around the Coin. We have my man Felix Fang on the show today. He's the co-founder and CEO of Set Protocol, S-E-T Protocol. Uh, Felix, welcome to the show, man. I'm really glad to have you on. Would you mind giving me some background as to what, where you sort of came from and, and what Set Protocol is and what you guys are building? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I first... I was born and raised in the Bay Area and went to school at UC Berkeley. And in 2013, my friend was trading and mining Bitcoin at the time. This was when Bitcoin was about $100 and it went to $1,300. And I was pretty intrigued. I bought $1,000 of Bitcoin on Coinbase and probably sold it a few days later at a $10 profit. But I started uh, you know, poking around. In 2014, I was studying abroad in Milan and I had the opportunity to go and attend Bitcoin 2014, which was the annual Bitcoin conference at the time. Uh, many of the core developers were there, and I saw some of the early companies like Coinbase and met people like Charlie Lee. And I left that event thinking, wow, the technology underlying Bitcoin is going to transform the financial and legal industries the same way that the internet did for media and communication. So... Leaving that event, I started buying Bitcoin. It was about $600 at the time, uh, but the price just kept going down, which was pretty sad. At some point, I was down 80%, uh, but I kept at it. After I graduated, I you know, worked in finance uh, at an investment bank, and around that time was when I met Paul V at Pantera Capital. He had recently joined as an associate, and uh, I, we had coffee, and I started helping him look at various uh, companies in the space. It was mostly wallets and exchanges. Uh, I also helped them with existing portfolio company work as well. Um, in 2015, after my time in finance, I went and joined a Bitcoin company uh, called 21. There were two companies at the time that were well-funded in Silicon Valley. There was Coinbase and there was 21. I ended up joining 21, which was a Bitcoin mining company. It had about 2% of the network hash rate and I helped them make a transition from mining data centers to a Raspberry Pi product to uh, 
kind of paid message, email messaging, which is what they are today. And now they're owned by Coinbase. Um, and after, after my time at 21, uh, you know, it was 2016 and there were a bunch of scaling debates and you know, it was, I left the space a little bit and I kind of worked as a software engineer at a machine learning startup. But in 2017, Paul said like, Hey, you need to pay attention to Ethereum. And at the time, I was mostly a Bitcoin maximalist. I wasn't paying attention to uh, all this other stuff that was happening. And I read the white paper, I saw the community, and I thought, wow, like there's a ton of stuff going on here. And I started converting some of my Bitcoin to Ethereum in the beginning of 2017. And it was about February of 2017. And that weekend, Ethereum went from $80 to $170. And that really marked the beginning of the bull market. And I was participating and investing and learning more about the space, uh, participating in ICOs. And the ones that were most fascinating to me were the decentralized exchange ones, like 0x, Kyber Network, AirSwap. Uh, it represented the first examples of primitives that were being built uh, on Ethereum. And the first, and it resonated with me in that like, it was kind of the foundations of this new financial system that I imagined being built. And along the way, I... Ended up learning Solidity uh, through Consensus Academy. Um, I you know was I attended ETH Waterloo, which was the first Ethereum hackathon. And on the plane ride there, I was thinking about what was missing in the space. And you know I've been I've been reading a number of different white papers a long time. And what blew my mind was when I read Antonio Giuliano's DYDX white paper, which helped me realize that you can build sophisticated financial instruments using smart contracts. And that was when I thought about what was missing, and I realized that no one was working on a decentralized index fund product, uh, fully decentralized. There was stuff that where you had a centralized custodian, uh, but no one was doing this using completely using smart contracts. So I thought about how to architect that on a plane ride to ETH Waterloo, and by the time I landed, I was so excited about the idea that I ended up ditching my previous team that I was going to join to work on what became SET. So SET is as we know it now, is a crypto asset management protocol. Uh, it's built on Ethereum. And our vision is to enable anybody in the world to manage any type of asset in which we think that many things will be tokenized and digitized using any type of asset management strategy. Today, uh, we launched about one year ago in April of 2019. And when we began, you know, there was one venue in which you can get a set, which is tokensets.com. Uh, we were the first users of the sets because we had put our own money into these products that we created. We were the first traders, which meant that we were the first people who were uh, generating strategies and we were the first liquidity providers and that we were using working our own working capital to provide these rebalances. Fast forward uh, one year later, you know, there are over 4,500 unique addresses that own sets and there's an incredible amount of word of mouth about people talking about sets and sharing it uh, you know, socially. There are over two dozen uh, professional traders and crypto uh, fund managers that are implementing strategies using SET. Uh, there are multiple venues in which you can get a SET. It's not just token sets. You can get SET on Argent, uh, which is a DAP browser wallet. You can get it on a number of different uh, venues as well. And there are about a dozen different market makers that are providing liquidity on SET. So... On a high level, like we've progressed a long way, but our vision is to continue to grow uh, the asset manager protocol. And we imagine that there'll be you know, millions of users who will be owning and implementing strategies using SET. There'll be tens of thousands of different like, traders and managers that are, that are running uh, sets. And you know, there'll be many, many venues where you can get a set. In the future, you might be using SET without even knowing it when you're, you know, kind of putting money into your retirement account. So that's kind of where we see things going. And that's a long-winded way to kind of tell my story. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. That's fantastic. Congrats on the progress. Uh, it's bre almost breaking it down for a second. Say I'm, say you're explaining it to your mom, right? In its most basic form, uh, would you, would, how would you describe it? So uh, who would be the person that, say a non-developer, non uh, crypto fanatic at some point is using set and say they're doing it intentionally, or even if they're not doing it intentionally, that they want to understand what set is underneath the hood. Uh, what, what 
what would be the 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 thing that they could do with set that they couldn't do previously? Yeah. So right now we're focused on crypto, and even within the crypto ecosystem, uh, most people don't implement any type of asset management strategy. Uh, they the predominant thing that people do is they just hold. And it's the thing that's spread around social media and forums is that you should just hodl. And mm. it turns out that hodling and holding isn't the optimal asset management strategy, particularly when crypto is so volatile. Like you have you know, these bull runs and then bear markets and you have 40% uh, price drops in a day. And if you're not managing kind of your portfolio, then you might not be getting the optimal outcomes. So you know, what do people typically do? Like to, like, so it turns out that 65% of all of crypto, at least, is retail. And at least 90% of them are not implementing any strategy. And why is that the case? One is you know, implementing a strategy is generally not accessible. Uh, if you're wealthy or connected, then you might be, have access to a crypto hedge fund. Or you might know someone who is willing to manage your capital for you, uh, but not any. No, not everybody has access to that. Particularly if you are a little bit removed from the core and the crux of things. In addition, doing it yourself is extremely difficult. You either need technical knowledge to and financial knowledge to be able to implement these strategies, and you also requires significant time and effort. Crypto is twenty four seven, and you need to be constantly monitoring. Uh, these, uh, you know, these indicators and, and the price movements and whatnot. So that said, like these solutions aren't accessible to people. So with SET, we make it extremely easy for anybody to implement an asset management strategy. And we've essentially democratized access to these strategies to people all over the world. Like, you know, people from any country, uh, you know, there's no minimums uh, for our products. So it's extremely easy to use. And these sets are it's there's they're they're tokens themselves uh the be- easiest way to think about it is that it's an etf you know similar to an etf hmm. where you have this basket that can be that is you no know, that can be created and redeemed so it's fully collateralized which means that um if you oh, let's say you have a basket of bitcoin and ether that bitcoin and ether is held in a smart contract and you own a token that represents what's in the contract. And it can be redeemed in the sense that you can kind of burn that representative set token and retrieve the underlying components. And these sets or strategies you know, are automatically rebalanced uh, using some sort of uh, like quantitative or rules-based strategy or discretionary strategies based on you know, a social trader or some sort of third-party indicator so like essentially you like to kind of sum this up like a user is able to get access to a hedge fund strategy which is something they they couldn't have really done before Hmm. yeah so so that makes a lot of sense it's a good it was a good explanation so is the is the next level of development on this where developers create or traders create uh various um how would you say it? Like software interfaces for people to choose from. I'm almost picturing, you know, how Wealthfront works or Betterment, where they have a, you know, a few indicators, a few questions you you answer as an as an everyday consumer that puts, say, you know, ten thousand into into Wealthfront, and you say, okay, how old are you, and when do you want to retire, and what's your risk level like, or what industries you want to pick, and then it sort of balances it for you. Uh, that capability is enabled with Set. But is are the tools in place, or do you see is that the focus, or does my does that does that question even make sense, or how, how do you think about that? Yeah, so in terms of like where we begin, uh, you know, there's a subset. So in the kind of asset management landscape, there's a lot of different types of strategies that you can implement. Um, you know, for example, there's index strategies where you're diversifying across a number of different uh, uh, assets or securities. That's the predominant uh, strategy that most people in the traditional stock world have implemented and become very popular. So when you use a Wealthfront or a Betterment, you typically are investing in some sort of diversified basket through an ETF 
and they walk you through this onboarding flow where they try to help you map your needs and desires and your goals to the specific type of instrument uh, that would help you achieve that. So like in the crypto world, you know, baskets aren't as popular as from, from, from what we've seen because the performance uh, profile isn't kind of, isn't that great uh, as of now. So mm-hmm. like, and I want to tell, give you a little bit of context of how, how we got to where we are today, which is in 2017, uh, there was uh, a proliferation of ICOs and new tokens that were being created. And you know, any kind of one coin could have you know, 100x and you wouldn't know what it was. It could have been the next Denta coin. Uh, and, you, and it made sense to diversify uh, across a lot of these different coins uh, to try to make sure you capture the one that was going to do well. Um, but in 2018 and 2019, uh, the, the long tail of coins fell out of favor and everything consolidated back into Bitcoin, Ether, and USD. So these index-related strategies didn't make as much sense anymore. And But what did make sense was creating strategies that help people multiply their crypto uh, by taking advantage of the volatility of crypto. So it turns out that when you apply very simple strategy using some sort of technical indicator, um, it would help people turn one Ether into three or four. And that was something that most people wanted uh, and they couldn't do today uh, without excess risk. So in the market, you can just hodl, which doesn't help you increase your Ether. You can put your money into Celsius or some sort of lending platform and get 5% a year. That is great yield, but doesn't help you multiply Ether. On the other hand, you can use leverage or margin trading in which you're going 3, 4, 5x, which is very, very risky because you can be liquidated. So there wasn't this middle kind of ground product where you can take a limited amount of principal risk, but also implement a smart strategy that helps you turn one Ether into three. So that's kind of what we found to have prop market fit with our product today, and that's where we're focused. And... Hmm. Uh, so we're focused on these quantitative strategies, and specifically, we're focused on pairs trading. So many of the products on our platform today uh, are, are are defined as a pair. So you pick two assets, like Ether and USD, and it trades between them. Uh, and that's kind of where we're optimized today. But in the future, uh, we may offer products that implement basket strategies or arbitrage strategies or, or other things. Hmm. So it automatically, so you put it into set with that pair and the pair trading, and then it will automatically trade when it, when it deems it's uh, optimal to do so. Uh, absolutely. So uh, most users like will come onto our platform and they will go through this really simple onboarding flow. So they learn about what set is. They learn about the two different types of uh, kind of products we a uh, product offerings have. One is, the robo sets, which are strategies where the rules are defined in smart contracts. So once you are in the strategy, it doesn't ever deviate from these specified rules. For example, you can have a rule like if the price of Ether goes above the 20-day moving average, which is the average of the past 20 days, then it buys Ether. If it goes below, it sells. And it does that regardless uh, of like you know, human I- intervention. And the other type of strategy you have is a social trading strategies, which is where you have a manager or a third party that is kind of deciding when and what to rebalance into. And typically, they could be using their own proprietary systems. They might be using machine learning to figure out how to implement these strategies. They might be uh, just looking at charts and looking for uh, uh, different types of timing to scalp or to buy or sell. And so that's a different category. So in terms of strategy itself, those are two types of product offerings and the users learn about it in the onboarding process. And then it guides you into kind of connecting uh, your wallet, uh, sending some Ether from like Coinbase or Binance or whatever exchange, and then kind of guiding you to buy your first set. So uh, typically, you know, users will pick the strategies that they think will do well or follow traders that they think will do well. Hmm, that's cool. Are there traders that uh, you, can you see other people's trading history, and is there any sort of social aspect to the the trade the traders? Uh, absolutely. So these so the cool the beautiful thing about crypto is that everything is transparent. 
Traditionally, in the hedge fund industry, most people hide their trades, they hide their returns, and it's not freely accessible information. But with Set, everything is online. If you're a trader, you can see uh, your followers can see every single trade that you've made. They can see their entire history of trades. They can see you know whether you've made a good trade or a bad trade. Um, and yes, there are social elements uh, with this. Every time that a trader makes a trade, they can post some information. They can send updates uh, to their to to kind of their followers. And we have a very active Discord community where trade each trader has their own channel, and and users can ask questions. Uh, they can follow the performance. Uh, they can. Uh, get help if they need to. So it's a very, very interactive uh, kind of platform and very engaging. And I think that's where people have really enjoyed uh, the process of learning more about trading and you know being able to benefit from kind of following other people's strategies. That's really cool. And you said there's 24 traders on there. Yeah, I, I, earlier you mentioned there's a couple dozen. Is that about right? It's 24 people you could follow their trades. Yeah, there's about a couple, like maybe like 25. To thirty today, and you know we're constantly uh, launching new traders uh, each week. So we're currently sure. going on the clip about one to two trader new traders each week. And uh, what we're finding is that the quality of these traders continues to go up over time. I think we're super excited to see veteran traders who have twenty years of experience on Wall Street, uh, you know, applying to be traders on 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 set social trading. Yeah, that is cool. Uh, yeah, uh, crypto hedge funds. Who you know have legitimate websites and are sourcing capital uh, from from lend partners come in as well. So uh, this is like we're kind of seeing that more and more sophisticated folks are joining the platform, and eventually you might see the big players like BlackRock and Vanguard kind of implementing their strategies using Set if they want their products to be accessible and global from day one. Yeah, and you can go in the Discord group and follow what they're doing and and basically l- let your money follow their decisions, similar to uh, a managed uh, mutual fund or ETF. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. what's awesome about SET is that, one, there's no minimums. So uh, you, know, you can put as little as $0.10 cents, uh, into a SET uh, if you'd like. The other is there's, there's no lock. Uh, there's no kind of locks in terms of redemption. So you can always pull, kind of redeem or kind of get your money out at any point in time that you want. There's no redemption periods. Uh, So I think this is kind of taking all the best parts of crypto and applying it to asset management. Yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. And so how much is the total value of set, say in terms of US dollars, that's currently in the market? Yeah, right now there's about $14 million of capital that is in the protocol. And this is spread across about 60 different strategies. Uh, most of the capital is currently in the robo sets, uh, which has a lot more performance data. Uh, so uh, that's kind of accumulated over time. And about, um, about like 25, 20 to 25% is in the social trading sets. Hmm. So social versus the, the bot, meaning individual people control each buy and sell decision versus bots, a uh, uh, programmatically decided trading. Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So are there guys that stand out? I mean, are you seeing a uh, like bell curve distribution on performance or are, are some people just far and far and out the, the by far best performers? Yeah. So there's really a mix I think that when we did some research on social trading platforms in the past, we found that 75% of traders like were not skilled, which meant that like they weren't able to kind of generate returns for users net of fees. Uh, and I think we're seeing kind of a similar dynamic here, but, and we're also seeing a power law dynamic when it comes to the amount of capital. Uh, so it turns out, and you can essentially kind of apply the 80-20 rule where like 80% of the capital goes towards like 20% of the traders. So we're seeing that the biggest traders, for example, right now is this guy named James. He's based out of London in the UK and he goes by ByteTree and his Bitcoin uh, set has about uh, three quarters of a million dollars in it. 
And that has been doing uh, quite well. And it's been growing people's capital and people are quite happy uh, with kind of the performance. So that's an example of a set that's, do that's doing quite well. Uh, and uh, another example is kind of Adam Heems, which is also a UK-based uh, trader. He actually runs uh, a trading academy uh, where he teaches other people how to trade. And he's created kind of a set and that has been kind of doing quite well as well. So I think that's oh, kind of that's what we're cool. Yeah, so I think that people yeah. are starting. We're starting to see that people are building real businesses on top of set, and these man and these managers can charge, uh, you know, a few uh, fees in a few ways. One is they can charge an entry fee, which is a fee that uh, when you kind of mint a set, uh, a percentage of it goes to the trader. They can charge a subscription fee, which is a time based fee where the longer your your capital is in is following the strategy, then you the more kind of the, fee, the fees accrue over time. And then finally, there's a performance-related fee, which is if the trader is able to beat a certain benchmark, then you may pay a percentage of kind of your gains to that trader. So, oh wow, and that's something you guys built. You you built all those features in the in the protocol itself. Correct. That's awesome. So it's initially, I mean, obviously, it was designed for this specific application where traders would come in, they would be the ones to kind of intelligently architect the different uh, ETFs, so to speak, by analogy. And then other people would, you, so you have that like marketing engine where, you know, if you left it up to every individual person to come up with their own, uh, you know, their own trading algorithm, I think you'd, <laughs> you'd never really take off, but leveraging the existing traders uh, makes so much sense. I mean, that's that's what's currently operating. That's what's currently working in the non-crypto world. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool, man. So I, I'm curious to ask you. So you you uh, you know, obviously, I have a great thing going with Set. You, I noticed you wrote this great Medium article that had something like twenty four thousand thumbs up hearts. However, Medium does it on. Uh, applying to jobs after coding in a boot camp. I'd be curious to hear what that what that story was like. <laughs> yeah, so um you know, so before so like truth be told, I I learned to code after college. Uh you know, I went to school at UC Berkeley and I studied uh, business and I worked in finance uh, after I graduated. Um and you know, I th my goal was always to eventually become an entrepreneur. So uh, being in Silicon Valley, kind of every step in my career was to help me get a bit closer to eventually starting my own company. And uh, after working in finance, I worked at a startup where I got the opportunity to work with a number of different engineers and, and product people. And that inspired me to learn to code on my own. And when I thought about how to start coding, there were a few options. One is you can go back to school and do a master's degree. Uh, you know, you could learn on your own. Or there was this third option that many of my friends had started doing was they did a coding boot camp, which is uh, a three-month program where they teach you how to build web applications and learn to code in a very short amount of time, in a very intense amount of time. So because I wanted to learn skills I could practically apply as soon as possible, I ended up doing a, a, a coding boot camp in particular, it's one called Hack Reactor, and I loved it. I you know, learned JavaScript, I learned Node, I built multiple applications, and uh, and I left that kind of coding bootcamp like you know with a very valuable skill set. And after that, you know, I decided that I was going to get a job in software engineering, and I applied to almost three hundred different companies, and I ended up getting a number of offers and. I realized that there wasn't much written about you know getting a job after a boot camp. A lot of people say you should go to a boot camp, but you know what happens afterwards? Like do people actually get jobs? Is it real? And what's the process like? So I ended up throwing all my thoughts down to a medium article and uh I published it uh a few years back and uh it it blew up like wildfire. It was yeah. on the page of Hacker News for a whole day. It was, it ended up like, no, it was being read all over the internet. Uh, all the coding boot camps now make it mandatory reading uh, for people really? who, are, <laughs> uh, no, who are applying for jobs. Uh, and I'm still getting a lot of uh, messages 
every day uh, from people who who are very grateful that I shared kind of my experience. Uh, at the same time, like it did cause a little bit of a hiccup issue in terms of the company I was at. Like I was called in and had to have a discussion with HR uh, about the article that was written because the whole company ended up was reading it. So it was a pretty, pretty funny thing, but yeah. I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad that it was helpful to a lot of people. Yeah. What, what was the issue with the company that they, that you were, that you wrote it for or that you wrote? Uh, well, one was, I guess, compensation was like, okay, well, was I being compensated, uh, you know, fairly and, and whatnot. And two was, I guess, you know, other than that, they didn't have too much issue with it outside that, outside of that, Hey, there was a lot of publicity and it made them rethink some of the kind of policies they had. Uh, but yeah, I think compensation and thinking about that was at least having a short conversation about that was something they were, they, they had in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the shifting gears a little bit too, we were talking about, I think is interesting, uh, like processing what's happening in terms of, so today is, what's it, May 29th. Uh, we're like, I would say getting close to being done with quarantine. SF just released a, uh, a guideline that says they're going to start opening hair salons and restaurants the next couple of weeks. Although it's, it feels like it's always been pushed back. Uh, and what's, I'm still processing the, the gravity of the fact that Twitter and Facebook, um, Square, like a, like a number of major companies with, you know, collectively tens of thousands or if not hundreds of thousands of employees, uh, announced that they're going to be completely remote for the indefinite future or at least optionality for that. And, I'm, th- I'm yeah, I lived in SF for a few years. You live there now. It's incredibly expensive and it's a weird city because it doesn't, the, the, the homelessness is a, is a massive challenge for the city and rent and just getting people in the city to hire them is a challenge. And you're seeing people leave. I wonder what, what this looks like, or, you know, if you, if you say to everyone in an economy, say you picture United States and say, just hypothetically run this example that every company doesn't have to be local. So you can be remote for every company. Would people still congregate in cities? I'd say yes, because there's benefits to meeting in person, to socializing, um, the, the spontaneity of ideas and entertainment is big. But I, I think about like, what, what is the, you know, what is the effect that that has? Like, are people still moving into cities for job opportunities? Because that ultimately was the biggest reason that that happened in the industrialized age, uh, post-agriculture. And I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that subject. It's been something I've been thinking about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly in, in the crypto community, it seems almost ubiquitously remote, right? Decentralized work workforce. Are you guys, do you guys have an office or had an office? Yeah, yeah. This fascinating thoughts. We we do have an office. Um, no, we are still a scrappy startup and we work out of a three-bedroom townhouse uh, where some of the, the team members uh, live as well. Um, and... Right. Like for crypto, like this has actually been a boom for crypto in general, uh, because it seems like this coronavirus has really accelerated uh, the the advent of remote work, of of using kind of and relying on, on, on technologies on, online. That's why you're seeing companies like Zoom and uh, you know, Google Hangouts uh, do really well. You're also seeing crypto, which is Internet native. Uh, financial technology doing quite well uh, too. We were seeing some of the highest volume days in the past few months. Uh, but in terms of actually like the actual work itself, like crypto in general has been kind of remote first uh, as philosophically, but many of the SF based kind of companies still have most of their teams like in person. Um, but you know, we've been adjusting to remote work uh, quite well. Like we've actually been a remote first company uh, from day one. Uh, when I first kind of thought of the idea of set, uh, what I did was I just added my friends to GitHub to Slack and everyone would just contribute uh, online during nights and weekends. 
Uh, and so we had kind of remote first in our DNA from, from the beginning as you know, some of the people on our team were all over the world. And I think that this is something that people will continue to embrace. But at the same time, I mean, this is something that works quite well for introverts <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, maybe true. The community is more introverted in nature uh, as of now. Uh, but it's, it doesn't help very much if you're more extroverted. Uh, it's, you know, you really, it's, it's for some people, it's a lot more important to have kind of that human interaction uh, to, you know, there's a lot of serendipity, uh, you know, that, that happens in person. Like, you know, it might be a lot more efficient to do product work in person. So what we think is that, you know, at least for the core members of like the team, I think to some extent, it's still important to have like some level of like in-person interaction. It might be, it might not be the case that we're just in the office 24 seven anymore. Like we believe that, like being in person should be something that's optional, but like if increased, like if we need to be in person, like you know, flying everybody in to get into the office for a month to make sure we hash out some important product decisions, that might be something that would be beneficial for us to do. So, you know, I think that you know, I think this is something that is 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 just emerging right now, and people are just scrambling to figure out what works. But for us, like remote has worked quite well for us. It's been in our DNA from day one, and. I think that you know we benefited from it, but I think for many bigger companies where it isn't like as easy to make a transition, like we'll kind of have to see like them kind of adjust. And I think that's something we'll see. Yeah. That um, I think it's it's a it's a brave new world. Yeah, yeah. How, how big is your team now? Um, the team is currently nine. Um, seven cool. out of nine of us are are product and engineering. And uh, happy to say we just made a, a new hire uh, 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 two days ago, uh, whose uh, name is Punya, and will be helping us on kind of the operations and strategy side of things. Nice, nice. Are you guys hiring more people as well? Uh, we have one job rec open for a backend engineer. So mm-hmm. uh, if anybody out there listening is fascinated about decentralized finance and asset management and crypto, uh, no, please, please go to our AngelList link and, and apply. Cool, cool, and that can be anywhere. Uh, we prefer, you know, if the person is local, but we're open to remote for uh, exceptional candidates. Cool, cool, yeah. So um, interesting, man. I, I really dig Set Protocol. What's what's the closest thing out there to Set now? Is there another competing protocol or others similar to it? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that we think about it is you know the asset management space is quite broad uh, and it, you know if you define it as using some sort of strategy then there's a lot of different kind of other places where you can put your capital right there are centralized solutions you know you can put your you know you can invest in grayscale if your institution or a bitwise uh, you can you know give your money to uh, some sort of crypto fund manager those are some options that are available uh, for institutions uh, on the decentralized side, which is more retail focused, um, there are other products where you can implement strategy like Uniswap, for example, allows people to implement market making strategies, something that many crypto hedge funds do. Uh, there are projects like, you know, like Curve Finance and um, and uh, and I guess Balancer, which allow you to implement these types of strategies as well. So, but in terms of the quantitative strategies, there isn't that much on a decentralized stuff. There's some products like Mudrex uh, or other platforms like Shrimpy that allow you to connect to your Binance and Coinbase account. And if you supply your API key to them, they can help you implement some strategies. But it's not, but there's no kind of other player that's kind of working and thinking exactly the same way that we are. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Shrimpy, huh? I'd never heard of them. It's kind of a <laughs> catchy name. Uh, social. So that so the key element here you view is the social aspect, like having those Discord channels, being able to follow other traders, um, and really follow in their footsteps as far as uh, their trading platforms or their trading decisions, effectively. Yeah, I think that that's the social element is definitely one thing that we think is going to perpetuate uh, crypto. Uh, you know, and our product to, to more people. So like what we believe is that, you know, with, with DeFi, you know, there's people are going to want to use like improved versions of existing financial products, right? If you can 
do Venmo, but globally, like that, that would be great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you can, mm -hmm. someone in a third world country can invest in the S and P 500, that would be great. Uh, cause it increases access. But at the same time, we believe that people want things, new things that have never existed before. Like millennials and Gen Zs love like the idea of like Tesla. Uh, they love investing in Bitcoin. These things that haven't ever existed before are fascinating. People want to invest in the future. But most people don't learn about these new products by looking at the website itself or looking at technical specifications. Instead, they typically learn about these things from their friend that they know or a YouTuber or some sort of influencer that is obsessed about it and sharing it with them. So mm. that kind of this social aspect of trading is going to help perpetuate many of these new novel products to new people through people they already trust. So like when, for example, when you have a trader that's a YouTuber that you know, is creating a set and then using all these new kind of DeFi tools within it and sharing it with their community, that's how people are going to learn about these new products, not by going on you know, sets website and reading the white paper and, and everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're so right about that. I 100% agree. So I, I wonder, do you think, like, fast forward a little bit, uh, do you think that the the best performing traders are, um, I guess you could split it a couple of different ways. They could be individuals or they could be teams, and then they could have different strategies. Like they could be focused on the quantitative element. Maybe they're scraping all the historical data of other currencies and trading histories, and they're looking at BIPs and you know all the quant-related uh, strategies. Or maybe they're scraping social media. Maybe they're like transcribing YouTube videos and looking for uh, uh, patterns in the in the words and the frequencies of different you know terms and trying to, you know, you just throw a giant uh, machine learning AI program at that and you come up with some, uh, some output. I wonder, I mean, is it, is it both? Is it both the, is it just looking at everything quantitatively and then also adding some human layer into it? Because it's kind of like, it's a big game of predicting the future, right? And the, and the data we have around that is growing so quickly and it's growing not only in the in the trading domain, you know, in, in the stock market, traditionally, we know the prices of every thing that's traded and we know it, the price at every second. And you could you could analyze that to death, but you still have this massive unknown, which is human beings and what we do in the real world and the emotional uh, you know, patterns. And, but it's fascinating now that the emotions of human beings are being transcribed through social media. And in a way where you, you could like, in theory, scrape all this down and add that to the the quantitative machine. Mm. I, I mean, that sounds kind of dystopian in a way. Like it's, it, I don't know to what degree that is possible or impossible. I don't know if you thought about that. Yeah, yeah. This is a fascinating topic uh, that you brought up here. So, our traders, essentially, some of what you're describing is doing sentiment analysis, which is taking all this data from Twitter, from social media, from Google searches, and aggregating that data and creating uh, an index or an, a, a value from zero to hundred on how, you know, let's say bullish or bearish, like uh, you know, the market is at the moment. And you can use that as an indicator to make trades on. In fact, one of our traders, CryptoCat, uh, used the greed and fear index, uh, which is an index that tracks all the social media uh, information and and spits out you know a number between zero and a hundred uh, whether you know the market is fearful or greedy and if it's greedy you should be selling if it's fearful you should be buying and specifically you would buy if the fear uh, kind of like level was below if the index was below twenty which is very fearful and you would sell if it's above eighty so that's some that's a strategy that someone has already uh, implemented but at the same time. Another point that you talked about that was interesting is that you know, there are a lot of traders that just implement very quantitative and systematic strategies. And when they ask some of the users, uh, you know, whether like they prefer to stick to the strategies, just the rules in the book, or to utilize the strategies and add human intervention when it feels right, most of the users actually prefer the latter, which is they would prefer that the humans kind of override certain machine decisions if they felt that it didn't make sense because 
you know, sometimes the human intuition experience can uh, be very beneficial to trading. So what we're finding is that users and these kind of investors actually prefer kind of the marriage of human and machines together. <laughs> and I think that will be mm. a interesting and powerful future as you know more broadly we talk about like ai and how we can coexist with machines and algorithms or in a more symbiotic kind of manner yeah wow that's fascinating it's like we need each other you ever see the ibm uh jeopardy where the ibm it was like on the final question and ibm watson was asked uh like something like what what's the what base what u.s uh, baseball or what U.S. city? I forget what the exact question was, but the answer was what U.S. Or the question was what U.S. city something or other, and the answer was Toronto, and uh, or the IBM Watson said Toronto, and thinking it was a U.S. city because it used all the you know historical data on the fact that Toronto has the U.S. baseball team and everything else, and it's like a human being would have you know easily parsed that apart and. Yeah, you're right. There is, there does seem to be some kind of um, like layer or value add. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think about this sometimes. Is it a long term thing, or is it a uh, is it a is it a short term advantage we have because we can parse information and emotions that machines can't get access to yet? Or yeah, I don't know. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like it, it's kind of fascinating how uh, crypto trading has it's so decentralized and it has access to so much data and information that it starts to collide with uh like philosophy in some sense you know do you do you think like a question could be do you think everything is predetermined from an existential standpoint and if the answer is yes then then the move from an investment perspective should be to get as much data as you can to to predict exactly what direction we're going. But intuitively to me, that doesn't feel right. It feels like there's some balance between decision and that there's always chaos in the machine. And um, yeah, so I, I, I wonder, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, as you guys grow, who, who become, what strategies become the most, um, the best performing over periods of time. And um, yeah, you know, another guy that's so, so fascinating that throws up so many, uh, so it triggers so many people and is also so insightful as Nassim Tlaib, mm. who I'm sure you're familiar with, and his whole black swan theory of uh, you know, following trends and historical data uh, it largely works until the moment where it's drastically wrong. And that came to life recently when I saw the uh, unemployment rate graph uh, in the US. Yeah. It was like, you know, relatively flat line or growing or shrinking. And then all of a sudden, bam, it just goes up, you know. 20x in a day or a, a quarter and it's like what what machine could have ever predicted that is that even is that even possible to predict um yeah yeah i don't know i mean when you have these like five sigma events like it's just very very improbable right like one example that uh i've been i was watching the the AlphaGo documentary recently uh it was no it was when it was kind of a show about how uh, deep mind uh, built the system and the story behind kind of creating kind of this artificial intelligence that was able to beat the best human players at go and um, you know they ended up playing Lee Sedol who's the top Korean player in the world like he there's no one else that's better than him he's won 18 championships and titles in his career uh, he's the best human that has ever existed uh, and he played alpha go and AlphaGo ended up winning uh, four out of five games. <laughs> and it was actually expected that AlphaGo would win every single game um, after yeah. this game happened. And the game that he that AlphaGo lost was when Lee Sedol made this move that was just so improbable. Uh, in, 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 term, in his algorithm, it was like a five sigma improbability in, in of it actually happening. Like it was a 0.00001% chance that a human could have made that move. So it assumed that move was a mistake and it played oh. <laughs> and thus it lost the game. So uh, I think that like, yeah, the, the machines and the models that we have can't take into account like, or like won't take into account these like kind of extreme edge cases, which are going to happen. But I think that 
know, it may be something they take into account in the future, but as of now, like it's, you know, it's prone to those type of errors. Yeah. 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 No, that's fascinating. I mean, it does, it does ask the question, it does be, uh, like beg the question of whether humans, um, you know, can trick the machine indefinitely. Like, are we, do we just have something operating in our, uh, our, our, our meat bag machine that is, um, you know, something that electrons and computers could never attain. It's kind of, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think one question I want to ask you, I'd be curious of your thoughts is, do you say, say you picture the global financial market now, which is quite constrained, you know, by regulatory and technical barriers that are still in place. And, you know, the future you could paint as like everyone could move any amount of money for nearly free everywhere in the world uh, instantaneously. And, you know, all friction is, is, is removed. And the bank, the industrial centralized banking systems uh, that currently take up a sizable percentage of the GDP are kind of like that wealth is is decentralized. People they have access to complex financial in- instruments. Like what what kind of world does that spark? Are we does are we now like I, one one thing I try to envision too that crypto is pretty inspiring for is thinking like what does utopia look like. It, as it relates to the financial industry, yeah. you know, if people have access to do all these uh, incredibly um, free and open tools and trading you know, techniques, um, d- does it just like, do we just look like a world that is, you know, flourishing like crazy or, or is there something looming as the next challenge for humans? I, I, I don't know. I'm still thinking about that one. You know, what's crazy is that we're already living in that world today uh, with communication. You know, like right now you can send a text message to anybody in the world instantly. Like they'll, they'll get it. Like they can be in a third world country. If they have access to satellite internet, they can do it. You can create medium posts and like share it and people all over the world can read it like instantly. You can do a podcast like this and people all over the world can, can listen to it. I think like that type of global permissionless nature that's 24/7 that's that anybody can get access to like should also apply to our finances as well. It should also be global. It should be 24/7. Like it yeah. kind of work you now in the US, like we're lucky to have a lot of really sophisticated financial products and it works quite well if we're not dealing with people outside of the US, right? If you can Venmo somebody quite easily, uh, you know, without any issue, like there's Robinhood app and all this stuff, but it kind of doesn't work outside of the US. The moment that you leave, uh, you that that goes away. And I think that I think that all these properties I described with the internet, it's just going to happen with our financial products as well. It's kind of like the financial industry got left behind, you know, when the internet got created. It wasn't built in from day one. Uh, you know, you have these companies like PayPal and Stripe and Plaid. that are giant companies that are making tons of revenue building on existing financial rails. They're using the existing system, which is nine to five, Monday to Friday. It's jurisdictionally bound. You know, they can only launch their product one country at a time, right? Robinhood starts in the U.S., and then they launch Canada, and then they do Mexico. It doesn't start with everybody on day one. So what we see is that with these kind of crypto native, like internet native financial system, like when you launch a product, it's just available to everybody on day one. Like when Facebook launches, it's just available to everybody. <laughs> like you, know, anyone, yeah. anybody can sign up, and that's just how we see that the, the financial world should be. We're already living it. It's yeah. just part of it got left behind. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. Yeah, and it's 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 fascinating these two worlds of communication, call it attention and currency because they they start to intermingle, right? I mean, effectively the global currency is moving in a direction of attention. The human attention is ulti- is the ultimate currency. And I, I, there's a project um now the Brave browser, the basic attention token that I I love because it it really uh, it, it takes advantage of this reality that uh, that that our attention is what advertisers pay for. It's what you know Google and Facebook 
are all built upon monetiz their monetization strategy. So if you start to see those two worlds blend together, where the, the currency that you use to pay for things is the same currency that, that you pay or that you, your attention goes towards and you, you get reciprocal value from that, that it, it, in some ways I, I see this oncoming clash between the collective, uh, you call it just government for lack of like a collective author authority, these, this government control versus the individual. And, and you can feel that tension right already. And people, you know, moving out of the U S and, uh, going to Puerto Rico to evade taxes. And like, there's a strong contingent of the crypto community that is libertarian and believes that people should have complete control over their currency and that it shouldn't be monitored by the government. And a lot of projects are, you know, created with that same vision and it's, it's a tension and it's, we're on the earlier side of that tension, but it's, uh, it's going to be, I'm super curious about how that plays out because the, the, the tension to control, you know, China is notorious for this, uh, but to control people's money and to, to understand where they're spending it and where they're spending attention is, yeah, I, it's a, it's a whole another podcast in and of itself to, to go through like the pros and cons. Um, any extreme I think is, is terrible. And any utopia becomes a dystopia pretty quickly, but yeah. Oh yeah, I love you. I think that's <laughs> crazy yeah. stuff. I think one thing that I mean, there's certainly the at the political aspect of things, but the other thing that you mentioned that kind of made me think is the idea of the financialization of like attention and the financialization of anything in general, right? Like we're seeing some pretty really interesting experiments uh, get created uh, on kind of on Ethereum and then DeFi. For example, you're seeing people creating tokens like, like that financialize themselves. Like you can create your own personal token, like the Mike token, and you can kind of like distribute it to people all over the world and they essentially get a piece of your future earning or your equity. Um, you're also seeing the tokenization of art. So like any artist like work, they can kind of create a token for. And I think that that's something that hasn't been so easily and widely done before that we're going to see an explosion, a renaissance, if you will, of new behaviors and activities happen that kind of tokenize and financialize everything. Like attention is one of them. And I think that's a, we're super excited to, to kind of see these things play out. Yeah, yeah, you know the uh the Italian Renaissance was right after the the plague. So I uh I I wonder I wonder if the coronavirus could be the precursor to uh to a renaissance of sorts thinking about what is that what does that look like? Certainly crypto is a big piece of it. Yeah. I think that yeah, I'm excited. I mean, partly it's also like the coronavirus and maybe also the breakdown of the existing financial system. Like it just doesn't serve the world that in the way that we want to operate and work today. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome conversation, man. I think it's a good, good point to wrap up, but Felix, congrats on all the progress with uh, set protocol. And I wish you the best of, of luck going forward for everyone listening. Is there a way people can contact you or the team or what are the best places to point them towards? Sure. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at set protocol or at token sets. And you know, my Twitter is Felix Two Fang. So if you have any questions, just reach out. Awesome. All right, Felix. Talk to you soon, man. Thank you. Thank you. Ha! Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.